The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians. Um, so if you don't know where that is, uh, in your Bible, uh, it's basically if you hold your Bible like this, you just kind of like flip over a few pages, uh, maybe a hundred or so pages. And um, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a, a letter that Paul wrote to a city in the uh, ancient world, very similar to ours, that um, had a lot of crazy stuff and crazy people, and um, they were all trying to figure out how to uh, be broken people who love Jesus. And so that's what we're looking at here. If you're trying to uh, catch up where we are, we are just still in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 31. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this for us, and then I'm going to pray and ask God to help us to understand what he is teaching us and showing us and inviting us into with these words. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and Follow to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word, I pray that as we have just sung about how your mercy is stronger and greater than our many sins and weaknesses and how you are our one boast, I pray that you would show us how to boast in Christ and him crucified. What does that mean for us? And guard us from the temptations to boast in anything else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you would have known from this last week, there are a lot of ways to boast. Um, If you paid attention to anything that happened last Sunday afternoon and saw the glory of the Lord revealed in the hands of Tom Brady, um, you would have known that there is a lot of boasting that goes on in our culture and context. Uh, There's a lot of people in our country who like to boast in things. Um, I I have the privilege of being friends with a lot of people who are um, Eagles fans, and um, for having only one Super Bowl under their belt, uh, they boast a lot about the Eagles. And um, I just want to keep showing them, like, look, Brady's got six rings, bro. Like, 
people boast about a lot of things, right? If it's not the Super Bowl and if that's not your thing, the sporting stuff, um, people boast about, you know, video games or books and novels or politicians and politics. We boast about a number of things because what we like to do when we're boasting is we're saying, this is important to me and I'm glad it's being recognized for what it is, right? Like when we boast about something, we're basically enjoying out loud what is important to us on the inside. That's what we're doing when we're boasting in something. And when we, when we come to the, the Corinthian church, what they had done is they had taken all of their you know, Eagles jerseys and Patriots jerseys and all their expectations of what they boast in, and they had taken them into the church, and then they expected God to play by their rules of what they expected to boast in, right? They, they wanted to boast in something, and they had taken their expectations of how they boasted in things without Jesus, and then brought them into the church and said, Jesus, you need to perform this way so that I can boast in you because then you'll be really great. And that's what Paul's addressing here in, in, in Corinthian church because we do the same sort of thing, right? We have our expectations and our assumptions about who God is and how he works and how he operates and how we are then just going to give him glory and praise. And God uh, doesn't dress up the way we expect him to. Right? When, if, you're, if you're looking at this passage, you're basically seeing that Paul is kind of laying it out here, verse 18, right? For the word of the cross is followed to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's a contrast going on here. It's, it's one group of people who are saying, that is totally stupid. And the other people who are saying, that's the power of God. Like, that's where the God's mind is revealed. And that's how we experience who God is to boast in him. That's what, it, that's what Paul is, is talking about all through this passage. He's, he's basically laying out there's a, um, a false way to boast in God, and there's a true way to boast in God, because it all goes into the heart of how we expect God to work and experience his work. So what we're going to do is we're just going to, we're going to kind of like a sideways tackle. We're going to come at this passage sideways. We're not going to just go through verse by verse, but just going to go through, we're going to bust it up on the side. Because in the, in the middle of this, we have these two categories, right? We have the deceitful religion that we want to boast in, and then there's gospel religion that we want to boast in. But we're going to bust it up on the side so that we see a little bit more clearly what categories of what Paul is talking about. Because the main point of what we're going to be looking at in this whole, this whole passage is that our only boast is the cross of Christ. Our only boast in life is the cross of Christ. And if that's true... Paul is addressing um, ways we're tempted to boast in God that aren't true. And so we're going to come at this and we're going to see that in three different ways. And then we're going to end by looking at what gospel religion is. What, what, what does it mean to boast in gospel religion? And we're going to come at that and we're going to see three dynamics to that as well through this passage. So we're going to pick up... Um, here's what we're going to do. I want to draw your attention to verse 22 through 27 and 28 so that we begin to see this category of what does it mean to be boasting in distorted religions, right? That's going to be the first thing we start looking at. What does it mean to be looking at distorted religions? Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Hold on. I have got to start my stopwatch so that I don't go over time. <laughs> Speaking of expectations, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both to Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. 
Not many were of noble birth. Now pay attention here because Paul's going to introduce for us three categories. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. See, in, in Corinthian church, they would have had these kind of three kind of groups of people, right? They would have had Jews who would have been um, faithful followers of God uh, before Jesus, and they would have had kind of the Greeks who were all um, academics and who loved the show, and then they would have had Romans who were all about the power and the government and like, let's get stuff done by the power of the sword. So they had these three categories, and, and Paul draws our attention most clearly. There we go. There's some power for you. You got, you got Jews and Greeks up here, and then I'm seeing when I look at this, this dynamic of power and weakness that he keeps kind of going back and forth on is kind of hinting to the Roman presence in Corinth, right? There's, so you have the Jews who want, who want one thing, Greeks who want another thing, and Romans who want another thing. That's why I'm putting this all under the boasting and distorted religions because I think in each one of these, Paul is seeing kind of these, these fundamental categories of how we, we boast in false religions. So the first one is we want to boast in distorted religions that are impressive religion. We, we, we like impressive religion, right? You, you see that in verse 22? The G- Jews demand signs, right? I just want to make this clear. He's not using that as a pejorative term, right? That's a, that's a category of people that he's talking about. Jews demand signs. Why, why would they have wanted to approach God and said, God, we demand signs, right? If you remember, if you've ever read through the life of Jesus, you had the Pharisees and all these guys who were Jesus Come on, do a sign for us, right? Do a show for us, right? Show off how great you are. Well, why, why would they have done that? Because that seems rather, if you come to God and say, hey, God, show off for me now. That, that seems, at face value, that seems offensive, doesn't it? Or at least a little ridiculous. But they would have been looking at their Old Testament and said, look, God, the, the biggest redemptive act, the biggest act that you did to show who you are in the entire Old Testament is the book of Exodus. And what happens in the book of Exodus? God comes in and flexes big time, right? <laughs> he shows off how great he is because he comes into Egypt. He basically invades Egypt and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, uh, no, not doing that. <laughs> and then God says, okay, let my people go or I'm going to send 10 plagues on you. And those 10 plagues destroy sequentially each one of the Egyptian gods and shows I'm stronger than all of your gods. And then not only that, I'm going to lead my people out and we're going to walk through a river and I'm going to part it so they walk on dry ground. Dry, dry ground. That's, pretty, that's pretty impressive in terms of like, hey, um, what's your God done for you today type stuff, right? <laughs> he leads people by this massive destruction of his enemy in a, in a very overt and impressive way to be his own people with him. And so the Jews are saying, okay, God, when you come to do this for the final time, it's going to be just like that or better with exclamation points, technicolor, and bolded, right? It's going to be incredibly impressive. But Jesus comes, and he's a preacher from backwoods town in New Hampshire who comes, walks on water, and says, I'm the Son of God, and I'm going to die for your sins. That's not, doesn't, they don't quite add measure up, do they? One's, one's incredibly impressive, and the other one's, okay, you know, like Jesus did great things, but it's not quite the same nation-destroying as what he did in the book of Exodus, right? But that's what Paul was drawing our attention to. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews, 
right? We expect God. What this is, the desire for impressive religion is to say, God, I expect you to do things that are always impressive, and that's the only way you work, and I want it all the time. It has to be this way, God, and if it's not, it's not you. And then you have a backwoods guy who comes and dies on a dirty cross on a hill outside of a city that is apparently the redemptive, the saving act of God in all of human history. Like that, that, that causes you to kind of like when, you get, when you're walking on, this, on the sidewalk and you got that one sidewalk panel that's like slightly lifted up, right? And you kind of stumble over it and you stub your toe. This is like that. This is not what I was expecting. This was supposed to be an even, even scale up into who, seeing who God is. And nope, stumble, hit my toe, and trip over the, the block, right? The problem with impressive religion is that God is not a song and dance pony. He doesn't do things the way that you expect him to. He does things to show us who he is in his own way, on his own terms. But we still have this dynamic for it with us today. This is not something that like, oh, look at those stupid people in the Old Testament and they really got it wrong, or in the New Testament, they really messed up. No, this is something we still deal with today because anytime that we have expectations of how God works, expectations that God is going to be impressive or obvious or clear or overt or incredible and exciting, those are all ways in which we begin to kind of play into this distorted religion of impressive religion. Right, this is um, when we focus more on the form and the entertainment value than the substance of what's being said. Right, right. Whenever we, we got it, it's got to be the best songs ever for church for it to be God for really meaningful to engage with God. It's got to be the best sermon ever for us to really hear from God. Like that's when we begin to start saying, like, I want the impressive side of things, and that's the way God's got to work. It's always got to be exceptional. It's always got to be the next best thing. It's always got to be dolled up to appeal to me, right? This is, I think, for us as Americans, this is why we, we struggle so deeply with how kind of um, plain Jane the Bible is sometimes, <laughs> because we want, um, we want entertainment value, don't we? Like, we, if you, I think it's pretty easy to say that American politics and American te- television and media is primarily about appeasing your eyeballs so that you keep your attention on it, right? It's always got to be cotton candy for the eyes. It's always got to be something that appeals to us. And the moment we start kind of getting into substance, next episode. You know, th- th- this is not something that they would have just, uh, th- that was just for them. This is something where we, we demand something appeals to us and is the next best thing. And we kind of do it in like weird, subtle ways. Like I was, uh, a friend of mine was in a meeting once with a bunch of pastors and um, kind of sharing, you know, in those contexts, what is God doing in your churches and all that stuff. And uh, one guy shares, oh yeah, it's been really cool to see our folks um, serving uh, the poor and needy in our city. The next guy shares, oh no, man, man, we've been doing that too. And we've been preaching the gospel to them, right? And next, I said, like, man, that's crazy. We've been serving the, the poor and needy, preaching the gospel, and healing them. You know, like, it's always just like this one upmanship. We're always doing this comparison. Wherever we kind of buy into this, how can we make it bigger, better, stronger, faster, to quote Daft Punk, right? <laughs> whenever, we, whenever we make it bigger, faster, stronger, and better, we're always trying to compare things to get to the next impressive dynamic of who God is and how he can show himself, right? This is... What, we, what I might call like the hype church, right? I'm not against big churches. We want to be a big church because heaven's going to be a big church, right? 
But I mean, this hype dynamic of what's always got to be the next best thing. God, you've always got, we demand that it's better and bigger this time. Something we can easily buy into subtly. I find it in my own heart, you know, as a, as a pastor, I want to be recognized. I'm like, why is that guy getting invited to do this thing or writing that book or doing a conference or whatever? Like, why am I not doing that? Like, why not me? Do you ever do your, your whatever your comparisons are? Why them and not me? Like, why, why are they getting, like, what's special about them? It's like, well, that's when I demand that things are impressive and that people recognize that and that people recognize how impressive I think I am, right? This is this dynamic in our lives where we want the entertainment rather than the substance to be the most important thing, the form rather than the meaning of what's going on. I mean, this is what was going on with the, the Jews. They demanded to be this way, and it was a stumbling block to them because the cross is very simple. The next thing that, we talk, that, that Paul draws our attention to is one of the deceitful religions is rational religion, right? Rational religion is, verse 22, verse, the, the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, right? This is, they, they wanted things to make sense on their own terms and their own logic because, well, if God is rational and God's true, it should make obvious sense to everybody, and if you don't believe in the gospel and you don't believe in God, then you're dumb, right? This, this is a dynamic of the, the, the message of the Bible, the message of who Jesus is, must make sense to every person on our terms of what it means to be rational, what it means to be logical, right? We want the, we want the Bible to be academically acceptable, right? The way this confronts it is it says, verse 23, but the cross of Christ, we preach Christ crucified, which is folly to Gentiles. Right? It doesn't make it doesn't it doesn't make sense, right? So you're telling me that this backwoods guy from the hill country, um, who is also a carpenter, so clearly not very educated, came and revealed the will of God to us, performed miracles. <laughs> you, you mean to tell me that he made? two like fishes and loaves into a meal for 15,000 people that he walked on water um, and then that he died and oh that he rose from the dead you mean the dead person rose himself from the dead that, that, that is just absolutely folly to this category of people that he's talking about because it means that I have to submit my thinking to somebody else I'm, I, it's one thing to be a free thinker and we want free expression and, and, and engagement but it does require that we bend the knee of our brains, the bend the knee of our minds to the one who created us. I think this is, uh, we see this today um, when we are embarrassed about what the Bible has to say about just about anything. Right? When, we, when we're embarrassed about what the Bible has to say about gender, when we're embarrassed about what the Bible has to say about what does the created world mean and do, when, the, when we're embarrassed about what the Bible has to say about the exclusivity of Jesus, when we're embarrassed what the Bible has to say about marriage, or when we're embarrassed what the Bible has to say about life together and authority, when we're embarrassed about what anything the Bible has to address. Because when we begin to reject what the Bible has to say about anything, we begin to kind of take the Bible and put our logic over it and say, it must make sense on these terms. Founding father, Thomas Jefferson, he famously did the Jefferson Bible. Does anybody know what the Jefferson Bible is? You guys know what that is? Jefferson Bible is where he walked through the Bible and he, re- he cuts out all the miracles and parables of the Bible and just leaves only the teaching, like the moral teachings of Jesus, right? Uh, because the miracles are clearly, that's for lesser beings, <laughs> 
right? That does not make sense. That does not, that does not comport or uh, jive with how I view the world, how I expect it to function, right? He cuts out all, it, all of the things in the Bible that don't make sense. Rudolf Boltman, who is a famous theologian of the 20th century, said, we cannot use electric lights and radios. He was from the 1950s. Electric lights and radios, and in, the, and in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means, and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. Basically, we can't use our iPhones, and we can't use the internet, and also believe um, superstitious stuff about gods and demons and men rising from the grave. Like, you can't do both of them. That's what he was saying. And I mean, it's dead wrong because by God, I mean, we'll talk about this as we work through First Corinthians. God created all things, and they were all, all under His submission, and they're all created to give Him glory and show us more about who He is. But this category that Paul is addressing, that maybe we find in ourselves, is that when we expect God to work on our own terms and to make sense in our own categories, we begin to kind of expect that God's going to make sense. And whatever doesn't make sense about God, we have to eject. Tim Keller famously said, if your God does not confront you, then you're just worshiping yourself. That, that's, that's what Paul is drawing our attention here, right? They ultimately were worshiping their own thinking. We cannot use our version of logic to put God on trial. So the third thing that he draws out in this uh, deceitful religions, or distorted religions, I'm sorry, is the powerful religion, right? In, in the background of all this, we have to remember, Corinth was a, uh, a, Roman, a Roman city, right? It was a part of the Roman Empire, and they loved their power, right? We still use the word Caesar for a reason, because he is one of the most powerful people, and he was uh, in human history, and he was the one that founded the city. And we see this here in verses uh, 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Right? You see, kind of, he's, he's, he's alluding to this third category and saying, like, there's this, there's this d- demand for power that we all want, and yet God chooses to save people through th- um, that are weak and helpless and do not have much. But why, why, why would we be tempted by powerful religion? It's pretty obvious. Um, if God's true, then let's enforce this and get his rules in place to show and exert how powerful he is, right? If, if God's powerful, let's exercise and enforce all that we can, use everything that we can to make sure that God's respected. But God comes in and he confronts us, right? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Right? Even after all of our powerful and technological advantage, advantages that we've had, nobody has been able to raise a dead man to life. Nobody has the ability to change the human condition. And yet God chose to both change the human condition, our sin and brokenness, and destroy the power of death through a weak, frail, naked man on a cross shriveled and dead on planks of wood to give us new life and change our souls. Right? That, that's the story of Jesus, right? He, he, he died in weakness 
so that he could destroy the thing that we all fear the most. We all fear death at one point or another. We all, the thought that I am going to not exist like this anymore cripples us to the core. And Jesus took on that fight in the most weakened state possible and destroyed the power of death and sin. But we still are tempted by the power dynamics and we still love to kind of inject um, and preserve and grapple and hold on to power in our religion, right? Basically, ever since the third century when the church um, was made the official re- religion of the church of Rome, so that was Constant- Constantine, he uh, made Christianity the state religion. Ever since that drug hit the church, um, we have been addicted to making sure that we preserve our, our political power and our social power at all costs, right? If you look through the, the 2,000 years of church history, there are atrocities that, are hap- that happen in the name of Jesus by his own people because they are trying to preserve power. And we see that even today, right, um, in evangelical America, I think a lot of the culture wars that we experience within our context is because it, it, it frightens evangelicals to be put to the fringes of American society rather than to hold, quote, the moral majority in the center, right? The, the being pushed into the fringes of culture so that we no longer have the voting blocks that we once did, right? Evangelicals often are giving up their evangelical faith for the sake of preserving political power so that we get our guy in office, right? This, this desire, that is this yearning that we have our guy in place. He's our guy, regardless of the fact of whether he actually believes in Jesus or whether Jesus wants him there. Like we're, we are obsessed with this political dynamic in America today that's this evangelical. So you, you see guys like Jerry Falwell Jr. making ridiculous statements in the name of politics and Jesus because I think there's this addiction to preserving power on our terms because if we lose it, God can't accomplish what he's intended to do. Right? That, there's that dynamic. But there's also this other dynamic in America as well. We have this... Um, we, we've, we've kind of brought over these two, we brought these two together of the impressive and the powerful so that we have this kind of category of the prosperity gospel that God's given you power to bring, to speak life into your, into your, li- in your, in your life, power in your life. And you just name it, God, I am a rich man and don't worry, all that money is going to come to you. We want the power of what God can, of what we think God wants to do through our words. By the way, just to a um, uh, documentary that I'm working through right now is um, American Gospel. It's about two hours long. It's like 15 bucks on Amazon. I'd re- it explores this whole category of how Amer- the American values of, you know, entertainment, money, power have all injected themselves into just this distorted and perverse version of what, who Jesus is in the gospel so that we get it on our terms, so that we look great and we're happy and healthy and dying and going into a grave without Christ. All these things are not wrong in themselves, right? Paul is not going after the impressive religion. He's not going after the rational religion. He's not going after the powerful religion to say um, all those things are against God, right? He, later in the very book of Corinthians, he says, follow my example, right? In the, in the first, first and te- second Timothy, he says, follow my example. So there's clearly something where he says there's a right way to think about impress- being impressive or gravitational to other people, and there's a wrong way. And, and the, the rational side of things, it's not like the Bible's like anti-logic. <laughs> like there is some amazing uh, philosophical works written by Christians because God cares about the mind. He cares about how we think. And 
it's not that God's against power, right? He even uses this the phrase, right, that the cross is, verse 24, the power of God, right? So it's not that Paul is against or the Bible is against power or r- logic or reason or being impressive, but when you detach them from the cross of Christ, when you detach them from that center point of God's revealing who he is, when you detach them from Jesus, they become idols and they will crush you. This is the power and wisdom and impressiveness. They each tempt us in our own different ways. So if you struggle with the political dynamic of American life, maybe we need to address, is it because we're making an idol of power on our own terms? Strangely enough, when the church is at its weakest, the gospel advanced advances like wildfire. And you know this is true because it, you're seeing more Christians in China and Africa than there are in the entire in the rest of the world, right? You could, there's more Christians in China, just so you know. There's more Christians in China than there are citizens in America, right? It is ridiculous. And they have been beat up and put under the boot by the Chinese government for decades, right? If you're tempted to get frustrated with how unimpressive the people around you are, then maybe it's because we need to join God's mission to care about the people rather than the, the form of how they look, right? And I, I know that I could be a, a more handsome and strong pastor, so we'll start there, right? Exactly, right? So we're going to move on here because Paul is not trying to demolish these gods for us and just kind of say, now deal with it. But all through this passage, we've kind of we've jumped over these verses, and we're going to kind of pick them up and put them all together because the boasting is not the problem, right? It's not wrong to boast. It's just it's a, it's the issue of what you boast in. Are you are you boasting in being impressive? Or are you boasting in being wise and and well thought out and all these PhDs behind your name? Are you boasting in all the power that you can exert and how you can influence people? Or Paul's main concern: <laughs> the word of the cross to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Are we boasting in gospel religion is what we're going to end with. Verses, I want to read verses 26 to 31 for us because Paul does a number. First of all, we've read the, a few of these verses already. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We'll stop there. You see, the main aim of what Paul is trying to direct our attention to is that we, we boast in Jesus Christ on the cross as a center point of our lives, we, as the center point of our life with him. And he's going to show it in three things. And what I want to do is I just want to list them out so then we can kind of weave them together through this paragraph, right? Boasting in gospel religion with the saving word, by humbling grace, and because of the Savior's powerful cross. Right? Have you, did you notice how in contrast to the... To the the three categories of distorted religion, Paul starts out by just kind of saying, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Right? And he goes on to say, for since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God, verse 21, 
through the folly of what we preached to save those who believed, right? In the face of our desire for things to be impressive and smart and powerful, God gives words. Words, words feel very frail. Like these words right here that I'm speaking, these are the very things that God says that he is going to use to proclaim his excellencies, that to proclaim how great he is, to show us how good he is by, by these, these things that are just so frail, right? They're weak. Like I, I breathe them out and the, 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 the breath from my mouth is gone within seconds. But these words are the things that God has said from you and from me and primarily from his book that he is going to use to show us that it wasn't just some, uh, politi- um, some backwoods guy with weird political views who had some very social um, and socially engaged friends who got on the wrong side of the Roman government and got nailed to a tree and died outside the city that is our Savior. He was a man who was both weak, but he was the Son of God, God in flesh. And he used his word, he uses our words to paint a picture for who he is, right? Whenever I want to introduce somebody to my wife, I say, this is Michelle, right? <laughs> this is who she is. You, you could see her. This is, you know, this is who she is. God introduces us to Jesus through words, which is not nearly as good as being able to see somebody, right? So, so now God has, in a certain way, given himself an extra handicap, but he uses these, these simple things like words to say, this is who Jesus is. He died under the wrath of God for all of our many sins. He died for you to not only make you a, f- a friend of God, but to make you God's family. And now he is going to ask you to believe in that without anything being seen. <laughs> that is so ridiculously weak, isn't it? But that is what God has said. That's how I make people new. That's how I introduce myself to people. That's how I show them who I am, primarily so that God is seen to be how great he is and not how smart we are. Well, of course I would believe that, right? He's standing right here. I see the nails in his hands or the holes from his hands. I see the address for his grave. I see that he has come out of his grave. That is somebody that can rationally put things together and observe how impressive and powerful and smart they are. But when you're put in a position to say, you know what, God, you're more important, you're more right, you're more um, beautiful than anything that I could have wanted, and I believe it by the mere word of who you are, God is shown to be great and not us. Right? That, that, that's how the cross is positioned, so that, we, so that we believe in the cross and we are saved by it, but we don't get the glory. We're not, we're not put, our name is not put in neon lights and bolded and underlined right? The unseen work of the Spirit works through these words. But then verses 26, 29, you see this, for consider, pay attention to these words, calling and chosen, right? So it's not just that he, he uses his words to save us, but consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth, right? right? That's just, I, I don't intend to get up in church someday to say, hey guys, uh, just so you know, none of you are impressive. (laughs) I'll let the Bible do that, but I might not do that. God chose, right, pay attention to chose, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing things that are. 
so that no human being might boast in his presence. This is, this is another way of talking about grace, God choosing, right? Grace is God's undeserved, unmerited hand of love upon our lives, right? That is his hand of love that chooses to open our hearts and our eyes to see who he is, that chooses us, not because we're so great and impressive and obviously God would have chosen us. No, it's because the very opposite is true. There's nothing about us that brings God attention to us that says, oh, right, Jacob, of course, Jacob's on my team. God, God, even in the Old Testament where God saves Israel right on the back end of the Exodus that we talked about earlier, he just says to him point blank, I just want you to know, there was nothing about you that made me come to you. It was because I promised to. There was nothing about you that drew my attention. Actually, among all the nations of the time, you were the weakest, frailest, and um, your team was not playing very good. <laughs> right? There was nothing. But but this is, this is, we're talking about grace. Grace does not work the way we expect it to. Grace does not operate the way we would make it into a rational, logical argument. Grace chooses the very opposite of what we would expect. God says, I wouldn't choose, uh, I wouldn't choose people who are against me and don't like me to be in my family, right? That if you're going like, to make up your family, do you, do you want to put people at the table that have written nasty comments about you on Facebook, talked about you behind your back? stabbed you maybe in the thigh, you know? <laughs> you don't want to put those people at your, t- at your dinner table. No, God says, actually, those are the very people, like you and me, that he wants. He chose us. This, this is the nature of grace. It chooses because God is who he is, and he wants people <laughs> to be in his family, and so he chooses. And the, all, the question we always get to whenever we start talking about what this category of election, where God says, you are going to be in my family because I chose you, we always ask, why? And that's the point. It's not you. It's who God is. He chooses the weak and the helpless and the frail. And this should, by the way, this should give us an incredible amount of not only humility, but hope and confidence. Does this describe you? Right? Does, do these words describe you? Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. How many PhDs in the room? <laughs> How many PhDs, right? Not many were powerful, right? Uh, any governors? Any governors here? No, no governors? No, no mayors? Okay. Not many were of noble birth. Anybody related to Queen Elizabeth? Any, anybody? Prince Henry? Any of those folks? But those are the very people that God says, I don't operate the way you expect me to. I want you in my family. So that if you feel broken and helpless, and absolutely forgotten and needy. These are the people, you're the person that God wants in his family. But that doesn't mean that those other people get excluded, right? (laughs) Because the word is not many. It's not not any, right? So there will be princes, and there will be queens, and there will be politicians, and there will be entrepreneurs and and business owners and PhD people (laughs) that are in God's family. But he chooses the fringes. He chooses the weak. He chooses the people who don't have it all together, right? The title of our series is Good News for Bad Christians, the people who don't have their life all together. That's what grace does. He doesn't say, where are the people who've got it together, and I'll just kind of give them a little bit of like a little more. It's people who don't have anything to offer, like you and me. If we were so desperate for life, those are the very people that he chooses. 
And how does he do it? Verses 30, 31. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, Paul through this whole passage is dismantling any desire, any ability we would have to kind of smuggle in our expectations and our own pretense and our own pride to say, well, God, you operate this way, and so of course you chose me. Or God, you operate this way, and I just need a little bit of some help. No, he, he works through this whole passage to, to remove all of our false expectations and desires for God and says, at the end of the day, the only thing you have is Jesus Christ on the cross who was a real man, who was also the Son of God, who died in our place to save us from the wrath of God in eternal hell so that we could live with God forever, right? He chose the cross of Christ to be the place where he would reveal who he is. He would reveal what love is. He would reveal what grace is. He would reveal what wisdom is. He would reveal what power is exercised through a weak man to destroy the power of death over us, to destroy the power of sin over us. Did you notice verse 21? It pleased God. It pleased God. He's not just doing this out of rote habit. Like, I'll just do it again. It pleases him. He wants to. He does this, all this, to demolish our, our pride and anything we would smuggle in for ourselves so that we only get God and he does it with a smile on his face because if you only get God, you get God and everything else is thrown in. But you get God himself or you can get everything else without God and you lose it all. Right? He, he wants us to get himself and enjoy him. He wants us to enjoy the power of Christ on the cross for us. So that at the, this is why we talk about being gospel-centered and cross-centered. Because Jesus Christ, as we say, no other love could show us who God is. No other way. I mean, who would have thought? That, could, could you imagine like an academic context? You're like, okay, we're going to talk about who God is, and we're going to put together the story about who God is, and, and you come out with the Bible? <laughs> that does not make any sense at all. Like, this is not the way that I would have shown us who God is. But God chose it so that we see this is who you are, and this is how desperately in need of him you are. But this is how good he is. And he's happy to do it. He's happy to show us who he is. The cross must be like the sun in our solar system. It must be at the center of all of our thinking and all of our desires and all of our our longings and, and hopes. It must be at the center of how we understand ourselves and how we understand God. It must be at the center because if we put the little moon of our expectations of who God is at the center, it'll get destroyed, right? Because the Son of God, the Son in the solar system, will have his day. He will be the center. Right? That's, that's what Paul says, right? Verse 20, 29, so that no human being might boast in his presence. We're going to be in his presence. The only way that we can boast in the Lord <laughs> in his presence is when we boast in the cross of Christ. When we say, God, I don't have anything to bring to this. I don't have anything to offer. But Jesus did it for me. He did it so that I could be freed from the power of sin. And then he gave me his righteousness. And he made me a son or daughter of yours. Only because of him. So that in our hearts are put back in order like the solar system. They begin to function the way God intended them to. 
with Jesus at the center and not ourselves, when Jesus is at the center, things begin to make sense. That doesn't mean that we don't have problems. That doesn't mean that we're healed. It doesn't mean all that stuff. But our hearts are reordered because they were made to orbit around Jesus. You see, the cross of Christ must be at the center of how we think about ourselves and God, or our expectations will crush us. Right? These distorted religions, they will steal our joy away, and they will destroy a church. But when we have Jesus at the center, we have somebody who looked on all of our problems, all of our weaknesses, failures, and sins, and on the, had the smile of God, he died in our place so that we could become his children. That's something we want, right? That's something that we, we want to experience and enjoy. So that's why we're going to continue to worship God through singing about it. So as we sing these last few songs, let's pray, God, make the cross of Christ deeper in my heart. Plant it deeper. Plant it, plant it more into the center of how I think about who I am and I think about who you are so that all these expectations I have of the world orbit around you and not me. The cross of Christ... It's our only boast. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as you use these weak words and this small time together, that you would become the center of how we think about our lives, that our boast would only be in Jesus, and that his cross would be our delight, because that's where you satisfied your demands of us, and you showed us your smile. So, Father, I pray that for us who are weak at the fringes, that we would see that we sit at your table with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.